So Jesus, I ask that you come now by your Holy Spirit. Fill this room with your purpose. And Lord, be in my testimony to only speak of things that bring glory and honour to you. In your precious name, amen. Okay, so I am Lizzie Jones and... And this is my first time speaking at Vintage to um, all of you. Uh, can I just have a show of hands who this is their first focus? Okay, so none of you know me, or a few of you know me, so that's even more debilitating. Okay, so, um, okay, so I'm just going to put it out there, a caveat, that as... I'm not as eloquent or put together as my husband, so I just ask for grace that if I say anything that's kind of a bit raw and out there, just, I'm Australian, what am I gonna do? I don't have that proper British thing. Okay, so my talk is called The Search for Significance, and as you can imagine, I've spent most of my life feeling insignificant. So I wanna take you on a journey through my testimony and how I can stand before you and feel healed of my years of insignificance. So, uh, when Gair asked me to do this, my first reaction was, oh, no, no. You do that, that's what you do. Um, I'll just kind of hide in the shadows somewhere. So when I sat quietly with the Lord, because he said, Lizzie, have you prayed about it? It's like, you know, married to a pastor, I've got to always pray about my thoughts. Um, so I sat quietly with the Lord and I asked him what he wanted to talk to you about today. And I sat there for a while and I waited and I waited and I, you know, went through the shopping list of, oh, what's for dinner tonight? And you're like, no, Lord, keep me focused. And then it's like, oh, I've got to pick up Sam at three. If I leave early, I could get coffee. Oh, Lord, keep me focused. Um, and so I just went round and round in circles um, of what I wanted to get across to you. And eventually, as the panic set in because I had nothing from the Lord, um, I gave up and I sat there and I put my arms out and I welcomed the Holy Spirit. And I got the sense of the word insignificance. So my conversation went like this. Okay, Lord, that's a really good idea you've had. But you've healed me of that, so I want something really sexy. I want to be really intelligent, and I want to be less vulnerable than what it means to talk about insignificance for me. I wanted to unpack theology so you'd all be really impressed that my, my outing to you for the first time today was, yeah, I can see what Gare saw in her. <laughs> that I could feel good enough to stand on the same platform as John Mark Comer, Henry Cloud, Gare Jones, um, and anyone else that I respect that has given amazing biblical insight. But I felt the Lord lovingly nudge me to share my story of what he has done for me. So as you can tell by that introduction, my search for significance is still going because um, my wanting to feel really big time to you only proves that I'm still not there. <laughs> um, so for those of you who have never felt less than, overlooked, or in the shadows of your own life, I encourage you to pray for the rest of us.
So let's dive in. What does God say about significance? In James 4, verse 10, he says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So the way to really live a significant life is to allow ourselves to be insignificant in the sight of the Lord. And as a result, he will give us meaning, importance, and influence. Well, we can't force that, okay? We can't go around saying, I'm so humble. The Lord is going to exalt me. So therefore, it's a journey. And usually being humble comes from Hurt, suffering, sacrifice, compromise, all the things that we ideally would not like to feel. And to be honest with you, I have felt, I have spent pretty much my whole life feeling all those things, unimportant, having no influence or effect. So now for the vulnerable part. I have battled depression unknowingly since I was a young girl. I came from a family culture of shame. Both my parents knew poverty firsthand. They had both been homeless as children. And so our blue-collar existence in our family was like we had made it to the top of society. We were the high society royalty in Australia, which is an oxymoron in of itself. Um, And my mum's idea of discipline was to shame me into submission. And for the most part, it worked brilliantly. If I ever embarrassed her in public or got caught doing something that meant the neighbors talked about me or our family, I would get hit with my dad's leather belt. And these punishments always ended with, I may always love you, Elizabeth. You know you're in trouble when you get the full name but I do not like you. And you know how harsh that is for a little girl? It's not that she was saying, I don't like what you've done. She was saying, I do not like you. And when kids are playing in the street or in the playgrounds, they don't even know what love is. All they know is, I like my friend and they like me, or no one likes me. So when you have somebody that is meant to be building you up, loving you unconditionally, and they say, I will always love you, but I don't like you, that just says I'm useless. So as you can imagine, (laughs) this resulted in an inner drive to always be impressive at any cost to please people, to always do the right thing, whatever it took so I didn't feel that debilitating shame of disappointing people, particularly my mum, and the crushing feelings of insignificance. So like I said before, I have battled depression my whole life, and as a teen, these bouts of self-loathing, imposter syndrome, and suicide ideation, I just had to keep to myself. Because my mum, having come from the horrors of her childhood, there was always somebody worse off than me. And you know what that says to a child? You're irrelevant right now. What you are feeling and going through is irrelevant. So suck it up, 
put your best face on and go at it. And there are some circumstances that that is actually good. But for me, it was awful. So here's what happened. Learning to push all these feelings down meant that I started to live a dual life. By that I mean my outer world, the world that people saw, did not match the inner world that I experienced. My outer world looked confident, put together. I was an accomplished young woman of 18, independently and fearlessly taking on the world. However, my inner world was exhausted, painfully lonely, and desperate to be truly known by my friends, but scared to death that if they did know me, I would be a burden, I'd be too much. I cried myself to sleep pretty much every night and would wake up the next morning berating myself to, come on, pull it together, you've got this. You know, put on what people see, like it's, it was a costume. So by 18, and this isn't the talk to go into significant events, that's maybe next year, <laughs> see how it goes. Um, there were significant events in my life where I believed solidified this dual life. There were things that happened to me that I thought I could never, ever get over. Then at 19, I went to the hairstylist and she introduced me to Jesus. My family were not Christian. We did not go to church. I'd only heard Jesus yelled at the TV with a few cuss words either side. And... Um, I was at the hands of this Pentecostal, born-again Christian who was just enthusiastic about me meeting the creator of the universe. And I was really confused. I, in my outer world, I was polite and I asked questions, but inside, which I now could look back and go, that was the Holy Spirit, I was churning and I was holding back tears and I couldn't work out why I was feeling like this. I mean, who's Jesus? And she talked about Jesus like she knew him personally. It's the weirdest thing. And she talked to me about a love, an unconditional love, that I craved but didn't think existed. So I knew by the end of my blow dry that I needed to know who this Jesus was. So that night, I prayed the exact prayer that she told me to pray. And I can remember the encounter I had with Jesus all those years ago, because I'm now 52, I was 19, like it was yesterday. I was overwhelmed with the desire to repent, and I shared with him through streams of tears how lost and lonely I was. I said I wouldn't cry. Um, I kept asking him why the people who loved me and who should have loved me and protected me treated me so harshly. And by the time I'd finished that prayer, I knew I had met the living God. I knew my life would never be the same. I knew I would do anything for him. And the next morning getting out of bed, and I'm sure none of you have ever felt this before, where you lie in bed and you think, Oh, what did I do? What did I do the night before? Oh, 
Did anyone see me, hear me? Um, I did that and I was like, okay, if you're real, you need to back that up and do it again. And he did. He did. And I was like, this is real. This is real. And everything was different from then on. The sky was bluer. I had this genuine inner joy. I hungered for the Bible. I loved people who had hurt me. I felt close to the Lord all the time. I mean, I mean, it was unreal. It really was. And this verse became my mantra in Psalm 139, 13 to 16. For you formed me in, in a inward, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me, unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when I was yet there, was none of them. My own family, I felt so outside of. And when I read that, I felt so known. The creator of the, the universe and everything in it knew me, loved me in all my faults, and I was going to do everything I could to love him back. I was going to put him first in everything I did. I can do this. This is easy. And this lasted a few good years, maybe eight years. I had been a professional dancer and I, so I was touring the world with a dance company and so I was saved and then I went on my travels. So no church, no discipleship, just me and the Lord and the Bible. And he was really gracious, but I was a baby for far too long. I lived on spiritual puree and hand-holding way beyond what was normal and what should have been. But he led me and guided me and he, he was just everything to me. But like all babies, there comes a time where you have to grow up. You have to mature, you have to move on to solid food. And this is when the heart part comes in. And I say hard because it was time for me to unpack all the stuff that I had over the years shoved down so deep that I actually didn't feel it anymore. Because even though I was born again into this sweet life with Jesus, I was still outworking the brokenness in the way I lived. So, fast forward. I finished my dance career and I'm living in London. I'm working for Alpha with Joe Rice. We used to look over our computers at each other. Um, and I am desperate to do the right thing in this Christian world. Because outside of the Christian world, none of the world knew what I was meant to be like. But now I'm in an environment all day, every day, with these perfect Christians. And so my imposter syndrome and the depression all started to eke its way back in. And I began to feel the old pangs of the dual life again. And I realised I wasn't healed of any of that mess, that 
the Lord was just really gracious to me. And I, I started to revert back to my old patterns. I was crying myself to sleep every night. I was thinking, I began to think that the world would be a much better place without me. And I hated myself for it. During this time, I met Gare. Now, he did not heal me, just for the record. <laughs> Getting married did not heal me. <laughs> um, and just when I thought I was going to die in ministry, because I was really close to burnout, because I had pushed myself to look significant in the eyes of Nikki Gumbel and Sandy Miller and everyone that I thought just had it all together, uh, I got married and Gare's job moved us to Geneva, Switzerland. And I thought, phew, I've escaped anyone finding out that I'm actually ridiculous and I haven't got a clue what I'm doing and I'm a complete mess underneath. So I felt I left on a high of everyone going, Lizzie, you're so amazing. And I went, thank you, Jesus. Um, but the Lord had other plans because um, in Geneva, Gare was working for an American company called Procter & Gamble. And um, they had moved their European headquarters to Geneva for tax purposes. And Geneva said, great, come on in, but we're not giving jobs to any of the spouses. So um, at first I thought this was heaven. I wasn't allowed to work. <laughs> and I'm 30 years old and I'm like, oh, I can just do my own thing. So I'm gonna lie in, I'm gonna play while Gare's at work and when he comes home, I'm gonna be the perfect wife. Um, and his, but his role within Procter & Gamble was the um, Holland division of Tide Laundry Powder. Up until that point, he had not done laundry. So I was like, what do you know about laundry? I should be in that role. But, um, but I spent a lot of time on my own, Monday to Thursday. And no one was newly wed without kids. I then joined the Procter and Gamble, you'll love this, Trailing Spouses Group. <laughs> That's what they called us, Trailing Spouses. So someone's suffering insignificance, that was just like, I had become a trailing spouse. Like, go gear, you hitch your wagon to my trailer and you lead me where I wanna go. Thank you, Procter and Gamble. Uh, so as you can imagine, I rewrote that manual by the time I left, and it was not called the Trailing Spouse Manual. Um, but anyway, back to the real story. Um, Monday to Thursday, I had crippling loneliness. I started to fall into a deep depression, and I was embarrassed, because now I'm married, and I did have this idea that um, Gare was perfect, he'd grown up in a Christian home and he was going to lead me and God had other plans. That here I was in Geneva with no title, no job, going to dinner parties where other husbands were like, so what did you do before you got married? I was like, hmm, because I, had no I felt I had nothing to say around this table of executives. And all us wives would just chitter-chatter about what we used to do before we arrived in Geneva. 
And um, again, it solidified this idea of now I'm nothing but a wife. And um, I couldn't escape it. But on the weekends, I was the funnest person to be around. We would go skiing in the Alps, we would go hiking, we would, I mean, Switzerland, little neutral country in the whole of Europe, we caught the train anywhere and everywhere. So from Friday to Sunday, Ger had no idea what my week was. Because when he was back, I was on. And that was going to be, I thought eventually I'll get over this. But it didn't happen. Um, I got worse and worse until the point that I could not hide it anymore. The aggression came back aggressively and um, I felt so disappointed in myself. I just thought, how did I become this weak? How did I become the very woman that I had despised in looking at other women who get married and just give it all up? That was kind of my mantra. That wasn't what was going on. And actually, the lies of the enemy, the enemy of Jesus, I was beginning to believe. And this is what it sounded like. Well, what do I matter anyway? No one would miss me. My life is useless. I don't matter. I make no difference in this world whatsoever. What's the point? No one even knows. Monday to Thursday, I could be dead on Monday and no one will find me till Thursday night when Gare comes home. But these were lies. Big, fat lies. Whispered to me by the father of lies. In John 8, it says, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar, the father of lies. But let's look at Jesus in comparison to the father of lies, and I want to walk you through the woman at the well. Does anyone not know the story of the woman at the well? I'm happy to... Okay. So, and anyone that's been in the women's Bible study the last two sessions, Christy McClelland has become my hero Absolutely. Yes, give it up for Christy. Okay, so I'm going to say to her catchphrase, things are about to get gospel gorgeous, girls. Here we go. In John 4, 7 to 8, it says, Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. So let's look at what Jesus is doing here. He sat alone in the middle of the day in Samaria, and the Jews historically hate the Samaritans. So a holy rabbi, Jesus, is with a Samaritan woman. Let that sink in for a minute. He bridged the gap of speaking to her, a woman, alone. Then he humbly asked her for a drink from her cup, okay? Jesus goes on to offer this Samaritan woman the living water that he possesses. And he says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right 
in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Okay, pause. I have always read this in light like this. How could Jesus embarrass her like that? Why would he say things that are so hurtful to her? It's, it's Jesus. He had no need to do that. That's how I read it as a woman. Like, really, God? I don't understand. Put it in the too hard box of mysteries of God. Um, but as Christy explains, she said, in this moment, Jesus is not naming her sin. He is naming her shame. That is completely different to the way I saw it. Jesus acknowledges the real reason that she is alone at Jacob's well in the middle of the day. Her community had turned their back on her and after she was married five times, she is left vulnerable in a patriarchal society five times. Because back then men could divorce a woman and having multiple wives, he could just get bored with one he could just say, I didn't like your macaroni and cheese. You're out. Um, so Jesus is saying, I've seen how you've been cast aside in this society. I see how you've been left vulnerable because without a man beside you, you're nothing. You have no future, no protection. And that flipped it all on its head for me with Jesus. And I highly recommend for any of you who, have, who didn't do the Bible study, Christy McClellan's Jesus and Women, you've got to do it. It gives all of us amazing, incredible, God-filled truth to be able to talk about how much Jesus loves women and we have a place everywhere. Anyway, I could, that's another seminar. But... Um, so the shame she carried to the well was probably so much heavier than those jugs of water that she was to fill. And I can, can you imagine her fighting back the tears where she looks and thinks, who are you? No man has ever treated me with this much respect and honour. Then Jesus does the unspeakable. He reveals himself as the Messiah, the living water, to her, this Samaritan woman who's been married five times and is an outcast of her community. That speaks to my insignificance, that the creator of the universe has chosen to reveal himself to a woman. Let that sink in. Um, and in the words of Christy, who loves Jesus right now? Yeah. So she's gone from shame to the first missionary because she's now very clear of who Jesus is and given this community has totally rejected her and probably called her all sorts of names, they've probably humiliated her over and over, all she wants to do with having met the living God is to go back and bring all of her town back to be saved and meet this man. Well... God. And so she goes 
from cultural insignificance to eternal significance, from meeting Jesus. So let's take a closer look how Jesus did this. He took a detour. Him and his disciples were heading in a different direction, but he took a detour through Samaria to meet a woman in her pain. It wasn't random. He broke down barriers and acknowledged her deep shame. He talked theology with her, which again was unheard of culturally. Women didn't get to sit at the feet of rabbis. But he talked theology with her. He gave her the explicit gift of revealing his identity as the Messiah. And then he generously lifted her up and restored her honour and became the first missionary. Praise be to Jesus. Yeah. I just love the way Jesus here sees her for what she has honestly gone through, not what society deemed appropriate. Jesus spoke to her into her vulnerability and deeper shame. He acknowledged that she had not been loved well, and then he brings her up out of insignificance into a place of honour and trust. Jesus first revealed himself to a woman that felt unseen and cast aside. So where does that leave my story? And I'm going to be wrapping up. Fast forward seven years and we've landed in LA. It's 2011. And we've got three kids aged eight, seven and two. And vintage is being planted and cultivated and I am feeling so out of my depth in every way. As a wife, as a mum, as a servant in the church and in my purpose in life. And now my feelings of insignificance were rising to the surface with a vengeance. Depression was knocking at my door with a ferocity that I had never felt before. And I felt so much shame. How could I be this weak, this ridiculous, this out of control in my personhood? It was as though all the years of managing myself were for nothing. I felt, I felt that all I could do was isolate so that I didn't give the game away of what a mess I was. And now I'm on medication for it. And growing up in my family, what's depression? You're just feeling a bit sad, you know. Um, I was seeing a therapist and I was crying out to the Lord for healing. And over the next 10 years of building vintage, I tried everything to be healed by the Holy Spirit. All at the same time of trying to create an image of a strong female leader alongside Gare's incredible leadership giftings. At the same time, trying to support my children in all that they were going through with this new life, I didn't marry a pastor, I married a lawyer. And <laughs> oh my gosh. And yeah, <laughs> nothing more to say. <laughs> oh my gosh. There were so many circumstances in the first 10 years of vintage, and we're just going into our 13 year, 13th year, 
there were some incredible highs. Usually around Easter and Christmas where I'd look out and go, by the grace of God, I'm still here. And I would look out at what God had done through my husband, the staff, those early people that worked so hard to get vintage off the ground. And I would say to God, you did this in spite of me. And I'm just so grateful that I'm still here to see what God had done. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> oh, now I'm going to cry. I don't want to cry. <laughs> Thank you. But about 18 months ago, I had got to a point where I just couldn't go on. I just felt nothing was wrong. I just want to get it out there. At this point, I had done all the therapy. I had done a three-week program all by myself in the woods. And it was meant to, like, I'd come out this new person. I came out different. <laughs> but I wasn't fully healed. It was part of the healing. Um, but I'd got to a point in my life where I thought, I have to work out how to manage that this is who I am. God had not chosen to heal me in amazing prayer times with having incredible leaders lay hands on me. Um, I began to feel like I would serve the Lord, but he had decided to move on from me. But I knew him so well that I was not going to give up on him, but I did feel that I was too hard work by this point and he'd moved on. So anyway, I, I went to Gare and I just said, I don't know what to do now. I've done it all. I've tried everything. I've read everything. Um, and he said, will you try a therapist one last time? And I was like, I can't be bothered telling my story again. I haven't got six weeks. I need help now. Anyway, I felt so much shame by saying that, that I, I decided I'd try a new therapist. Um, I tried this lady that came highly recommended. Um, I'd not seen her before. And on session two, she says to me, Lizzie, your story doesn't add up to me. And she said, you're on medication. And hearing where you're at today and hearing your life story, it just doesn't add up that you're still in this place of deep darkness. She said, would you be interested in seeing a psychiatrist? And at this point, I'm like, I'll see anyone. I was like, I, I had got to the point where I thought, I must be schizophrenic, bipolar, all of them, schizophrenic, bipolar. At this point, I didn't care what the label was. I just wanted to be able to function and to provide a, a place. I wanted to have a place at Vintage that I felt safe in, in my entirety of who I am as Lizzie Jones. So I didn't care. You know, there was no shame in a title at this point because I just needed help. So I went. The next week, uh, I went to see a psychiatrist and there was a lot of work leading up to it, you know, your story and your family and any depression, any mental health, you go through the whole thing. Um, and I kept praying, Lord, this better work. This better work. Um, anyway, 
Two hours later, she very clearly says, well, it's very clear to me. You have high-functioning depression and you've had it since you were probably seven years old because that's the first memory of feeling these deep... More than sadness as a child. She then went on to explain why that looked like... why my history looked like high-functioning depression and what being in L.A., church planting all my history, everything, why the whole thing, what, what it meant. And you know, <laughs> I was really excited that it was called high functioning. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> um, and then when I got off the phone and called Gare, we both cried because it explained where I was at. She also said that I was on the wrong dose of medication, that the medication that I had been on, if you think of an iceberg and you've got the tip sticking out, my medication only touched the tip of the tip. So it took the edge off but did nothing else. And, um, you know, Gare and I, we cried because we felt let down by the medical world, because I had talked to doctors, I'd gone to therapists, I'd sent myself off into the woods, which if you know me, I don't do anything less than four star. So <laughs> that, <laughs> that was really hard for me. Um, and all I needed to see was a professional in her work around neurology. And um, it wasn't about how I was feeling. It was the way I was made. There were chemical disconnects that needed help. And until that was sorted out, I couldn't even think that I could be healed of all the hard stuff. So even though I would love to stand here and say, Jesus, oh, someone prayed for me and boom, I was healed. So you need more prayer, more faith, more anything. I have been healed th through God's sovereignty of science and over science and insights. God has given mankind an intellect to be able to sort these things out. And within five days, my dual world became one. And so much of my battles of insignificance, not the depression, I will always live with that. And it's high functioning, by the way. So, <laughs> um, but my insignificance was healed through the medication because um, I wasn't having these spiraling thoughts that I couldn't control, but I thought I could. I thought if I could just grasp and say all positive, turn that, you know, frown upside down and uh, go serve. And if you serve people less fortunate than you, you're going to feel better. That just sounds elitist to me. Um, you know, there is a lot of good in serving. But none of that worked for me. Like, I needed professional help. Just like if I had any other disease, disorder, and there was no shame in it. 
And all, so many of the issues in our marriage were solved on day five. Because Gare had been trying to help me at this point for 20 years. And I just thought we weren't going to work. We just didn't work together. And that's a lie. And the devil nearly won. And that would have really affected vintage. So you're welcome. (laughs) So that's my healing story. And I give all the glory to God for it. So will you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for your creativity of medicine, of intellect, of wisdom, of books and knowledge. And I thank you for what you've done in my life. And if my story has hit on any lady in here, I ask you to go and fill her with your Holy Spirit. Give her insight on her next steps. Bring community around her that will love on her the way you loved on me. Jesus, I love you and I'm so grateful for your power in my life and through science. In your precious name, amen.